Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with So Young Kim, Associate Professor of Finance, Department Chair at Santa Clara University. So Young and I discuss the rise of decentralized finance, or DeFi, and the current raging jurisdictional battles, particularly in the U.S. Mapping crypto products to the U.S.'s current regulatory regime may mean we don't need a new regulatory structure for DeFi, according to So Young, who argues for ongoing transparency in the securities, commodities, and other financial services that use blockchain. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, I'm very pleased to have with me today So Young Kim, Associate Professor of Finance and Department Chair at Santa Clara University. So Young, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. Good to see you again. We, we were kind of doing a reprise of the show that we did in Austin, and I'm counting on you to make all things crypto and maybe a little bit DeFi clear to the world. Not too much to ask. That is my specialty. Well, let's start with crypto then. And I wondered if one of the things that we talk about crypto is if we talk about its properties, if we talk about what it is and what it isn't, if maybe one way to begin to do that is to lay out these various claims for jurisdiction that we're hearing right now from the SEC, the CFTC, FinCEN, their state regulators. So I I don't know if that's a helpful way to go into it, but talk to me about crypto and its properties and who's making regulatory claims on it. Right. And this has been one of my biggest pet peeves for a very long time. And I'm glad you're asking this specific question. We are at least now seeing that, or at least regulators are now understanding that not all crypto is created equal, but there's still a lot of misclassification happening because crypto itself isn't its own asset class. It actually really depends on the intent of the developers. So crypto really is at its core, a record-keeping system, and the question is what you're keeping a record of. So you could be keeping a record simply of who owns you know, how much money or who owns what shares of stock, or you might be keeping a record of who owns which car, which concert ticket, etc. So each of these things is going to be treated very differently, and the things that we already have in regular, traditional, centralized finance, we can map out anything in crypto to something in traditional centralized finance, as long as we put in the appropriate effort. And that will really dictate how we should be regulating and even how we should be taxing each of these different crypto assets. For example, if we think about the way that an ICO is done, an initial coin offering, the question is, are you doing an ICO really as a way to raise equity? because they can be security tokens where each token represents a profit participating share in your business. So that would be no different from issuing equity. Now, the tax treatment for that would be very different from if you were doing an ICO so that you can pre-sell a product or good. Because another way to raise money is to pre-sell the product, use that money to actually develop and build the product. Now, the tax treatment, if it were a pre-sale, would mean that you first book it as a liability, and then you'll recognize it as revenue and pay tax on it when you build the product. 
Whereas if you raise the money by either borrowing it or by getting profit participation, you don't pay tax on the capital you've raised, but the investors are going to have to pay tax on whatever appreciation or interest they get. So we already have these things that we understand very well in non-DeFi, non-crypto space, and we really just need to draw the appropriate analogies. I think that's pretty interesting, and it leads to the question, I, I think you're making, well, are you making an argument that we need some new regulation or we have enough regulation that we can take off the shelf associated with centralized finance product, centralized finance offerings? Uh, do we need new regulation? I mean, I'm aware that sort of the whole blockchain movement and some of the Bitcoin and others began with a kind of an idealism that we'd have this trustless mechanism that there would be enough regulation just in the blockchain. But tell me about that. What do you think? I don't think we need any specific new regulation yet until we deal with all the cases that we already know exist in traditional finance. So first to map it out and then see if there truly is something that doesn't map, which so far there hasn't been. But some of the other questions that you raise, for example, where new regulation or at least better clarification would be helpful. For example, these DeFi lending protocols. In a decentralized lending protocol, we have all these quote unquote lenders or investors who are earning interest on the crypto that they've locked up as lending capital. And in traditional finance, there's a ruling under Reeves that would qualify that as a security. So the two that people use the most in terms of landmark rulings to determine whether certain things are a security are Howie, which a lot more people are familiar with, and Reeves. And Reeves is really, when is a loan a security rather than just simply a loan? So now with these DeFi lending protocols, the question is, how are you going to appropriately tax people who are earning interest on these protocols? Where if I had locked up money in a government bond or in a corporate bond, I would have to pay tax on the interest that I'm collecting. And the same thing should be happening with the DeFi lending protocols. But the question is with jurisdiction, because anybody is allowed from any geographic location to use these DeFi lending protocols. So should each country require that the development team for a particular lending protocol pre-collect the tax and dole it out appropriately? But then there's an issue of people, you don't know all the actual IP addresses that people are accessing the protocol from because there are people that will use a VPN to mask their actual IP address. And this also happens in centralized finance as well. There are websites that you can't access from certain jurisdictions. And so you'll VPN and act as though you're coming from a different IP address. And this is a well-known practice. Even kids do it with Netflix. What you've raised here is this whole world of decentralized finance. And a little while back, I did an interview with Tom Robinson from Elliptic, in which he talked about it as the Wild West. And it is the area that you said maybe does need regulation and clarification. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit about why should we want decentralized finance? I, I, you know, it, it has started out kind of rocky fraud, perhaps maybe not more fraud than centralized finance, but lots of fraud that we're still trying to you know, figure out how to prevent. And what is its promise? I think the first and foremost promise was there are low-hanging fruits where it's very obvious, where you want a decentralized method of record keeping and a decentralized method of wealth management. And that would be in countries where bank runs are not just a risk, but have been an actual reality. 
Um, and we've seen this time and again, Argentina 20 years ago, Ghana several years ago. We saw Afghanistan as people were trying to flee Kabul. They wanted to get their money out. And there were photos of long lines at banks. And when everyone wants their money at once, we know that the banks aren't able to fulfill. And we've seen countries where the banks have failed and collapsed in that way. We've also seen countries where people are forcibly chased from their homes. And Afghanistan is another good example. Ukraine is another example where it would be nice to have had a decentralized method of record keeping and store of wealth. But now aside from those more dire and extreme circumstances where you fear the collapse of your banking system or even the collapse of your country, even in wealthy developed economies, there are specific areas where this type of technology is suited and can only solve certain problems in wealthy developed economies. And that has to do with problems that are rife inherently with agency issues. A classic example is if you Google dark pool and scandal or dark pool and lawsuit, because there are probably about 50 to 60 trading venues where U.S. equity securities are exchanged. And not all of them are exchanges or what I call lit markets in the way that we traditionally think. They have varying degrees of transparency. And so the ones with least transparency, we call dark pools. And by dint of what a dark pool is, you don't want the same reporting requirements and the same type of transparency because when a large financial institution is trying to ramp up a position or offload a position, if they do it in a lit market with the price discovery, they will obliterate everything that they were trying to do when they started out. And so you're going to execute through a series of trades across different dark pools But now, specifically because of what a dark pool is, people are always worried that the central operator of the dark pool is going to front run. So I might see a big order coming in from, you know, BlackRock, and I might say, Kieran, get in here first, which is completely illegal, but you're always concerned I might do something like that. And now with this technology, we have decentralized exchanges. There is no central operator who might front run. And those are the kinds of issues that even in a wealthy, developed economy, we could really benefit from using this technology. So that anonymity, I guess it works best when we assume that these are regulated entities in the market who ultimately have to be responsible for their anonymous trades, even if they don't have to be responsible in real time or something. Do you you know where I'm going here? Because I guess I'm starting to go back to one of my main themes and purpose for living, which is uh, anti-money laundering and illicit transactions. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so with blockchain, and so when we talk about dark pools, the trades ultimately have to go to a trade reporting facility, but they aren't reported immediately to the SIP feed that all the brokerages and other institutions have to subscribe to to make sure that they're giving best execution for retail customers. So that's still a separate issue where the trades are being reported to a trade facility, but not in as timely of a manner. And an entire price book or what we call the limit order book doesn't have to be regularly updated. Now, separately, when you talk about anonymity on the blockchain, you'll see that things are pseudo anonymous or pseudonymous, where you can see the account number So you can see every single account that has interacted with any of these, let's say, decentralized exchange or decentralized lending protocols. Now, if a government decided that they wanted to crack down on these things, we do know that most of these have a publicly known 
central developer or development team, you could require that development team to say, only allow IP addresses from a certain region to interact with this protocol. Or you could say, make sure that you do not allow blacklisted addresses to interact with this protocol. Um, there are a lot of requirements that you could place on the development team to update the protocol to restrict certain types of access. What you could also do is you could start to say, anyone who is interacting with these protocols, they need to be using an account that has gone through KYC. Because people are starting to move identity onto the blockchain. So now, even though you can create an account without KYC, certain jurisdictions could require that your account go through KYC and be identified and linked to a particular individual or entity. And only that account that's gone through that KYC and now has a central repository of having gone through the KYC can actually interact on those protocols. Again, we talk about the anonymity. You're talking about a kind of, and maybe it goes back to the ideal of what the blockchain is supposed to do, which is to make this very transparent transactions. This came up in Austin. You know, your comment you at that time, you can see if you want to amend that, was very adamant. And that was over the fact that people are trying to introduce mixers and tumblers into the process to be able to do anonymous transactions. And I think, I'll let you say it now, but you were fairly adamant that there was no reason for mixers and tumblers. Was that right? There aren't any good legitimate reasons for mixers and tumblers. We'll put it that way. There, there are certainly reasons <laughs> for mixers and tumblers that are very useful to many people. And the other thing about these protocols, you can make them illegal. So you can say anybody who interacts with a protocol, the key difference between DeFi and CeFi would be that if I'm dealing with CeFi, then you can think of my, my pocket as a non-custodial wallet where I have custody of my own money. I haven't entrusted my cash to the custody of a bank, right? And now as soon as I move that money from my pocket to a bank account, now I'm using a custodial account. Now, when you're using a custodial account, it's easy for the government to work with banks and freeze accounts because the government can say, let's freeze this particular account. No money goes in or out and the bank can adhere or comply. Now with non-custodial wallets or non-custodial accounts, no one can freeze my pocket, right? But what you can do is make it illegal to deal with me. A way to make this more explicit. Tornado Cash is, I think, a little bit kind of what you're talking about too, where in the protocol, uh, it isn't possible to, you know, it was, the thing is running itself. Uh, we can't help it if there are sanctioned entities using it. And the OVAC's response and the U.S. government's response was that then you shouldn't be doing transactions with Tornado Cash. Absolutely. And after that point, any account that deals directly with Tornado Cash, now that account will be blacklisted because Tornado Cash is considered a blacklisted protocol. And the way that these mixers work is if I explain it with a non-technical analogy, Let's say that I wanted to get $5 over to you, but I didn't want anyone to connect that I'm handing you $5. Well, if we had a central entity that we walk to, I hand them $5, I tell them that you're going to walk up and you get $5, but no one keeps a record of that. And now everybody is putting $5 in and saying, directing where that $5 is going to go to. Now we've pooled all of this money and it's been dispersed to other people, but 
the only connection that people can see if they're doing any sort of video surveillance on that central entity would be that I walked in and handed $5, you walked in and got $5, but you don't know who was giving the $5 to who because we have lots of people walking in, pooling the money, and we're saying, let's not keep a record of exactly who sent what to who. And so that's exactly what the tumblers are doing. You can see the account addresses that interact with the tumbler. That you can see, but the tumbler is intentionally making it so that it doesn't connect that the $5 that I sent to you is directly linking us. So all you're seeing is a bunch of funds going in and you're seeing funds come out, but you don't know who is linked to who. And so you're taking a lot of legitimate activity, mixing it, and now you have no idea where the blacklisted account started and then who actually was linked to that blacklisted account where the money comes out. So we started with crypto and we quickly got into DeFi, which is this is all great. This has been a great discussion. But I want to return just for a moment to crypto. And I know that you know you can think about what you specifically want to say, but I wondered if you could put some perspective when we talked about jurisdiction, CFTC, SEC, what's the difference in the Binance uh, actions brought by the CFTC and the SEC. What should people understand about there? Is there a way to help people to understand those actions? I think the first thing I want to say is that the reason I go back and forth between crypto and DeFi is I don't view those things to be separate. There's no conversation about DeFi without crypto because it is that underlying technology that is allowing DeFi to be possible. With respect to Binance, as well as Coinbase, it's not a foregone conclusion that they're operating in a way that is violating securities law. So you'd first have to thoughtfully go through each of the listings and show that one is a security or not. Many of the things that are listed are really just utility tokens. And so it goes back to, I think, the initial question you had asked, where if we're classifying crypto, there are broad categories of what it could be. It could just be a medium of exchange, which is what Bitcoin was designed to be. And we've all accepted now that Bitcoin is considered a commodity. eBay, on eBay, you can list commodities. You can list gold for sale on eBay. But eBay specifically says you cannot list you know, stock certificates for sale on eBay. eBay does not want to be accused of being an alternative trading system that's not registered. And so if you think in that sense, then having a crypto exchange that allows you to transfer Bitcoin, that's just a commodity. There's no reason for someone to have to even be registered as a broker dealer or as an alternative trading system. Now, if any of these crypto exchanges were to list a token that looks just like an equity security, or if they were to list a token that looks like some sort of fixed income security, now that would be the real issue. But it's not a blanket wide just because they're trading all of these tokens, aside from Bitcoin and Ethereum, which the SEC has decided, okay, those are commodities. It isn't a foregone conclusion that they need to register and adhere to various securities law. You know, we're running out of time here. And I wondered, I always find what you have to say so interesting in terms of giving this broader perspective. Are there some things as we close that you would think people should understand about these markets that we haven't touched on yet and about DeFi and about crypto? Yes, absolutely. And I do want to reiterate the two biggest ones that we did touch on already, just because they're so important. 
One is not all crypto is created equal. We really have to think about what the intent of the development team was when that was being created. The second is crypto activity isn't synonymous with illegal activity. Some of it is and some of it isn't. And if you think about the record keeping system for crypto, in many ways, it is going to be more difficult to trace your tracks. You have to be far more technically savvy. And now with tumblers being recognized as blacklisted protocols, it's going to be harder to try to trace your checks. Whereas when you use cash, cash, there is no ledger. There is no record keeping system. And the third that we haven't touched on yet is that crypto doesn't facilitate fraud any more so than non-crypto methods. And I think that we get a little too focused on some of the big scandals, but a lot of those big scandals are either classic dumb fraud that's been happening since the beginning of time, where I raise money without any intent of actually doing something. I could be a developer and I raise money for a condo project that I never intended to build and then I run away with the money. Or we have cases of people just being bad custodians, right? Quadriga, hundreds of millions of dollars, bad custodian. FTX, billions of dollars, bad custodian. But I like to remind people that what eclipses by far either of those is Bernie Madoff. Almost $70 billion, bad, bad custodian. He had nothing to do with crypto, but I am certain that if crypto had been around in his time, instead of hedge funds, it would be crypto funds. Then tell me about the great future that decentralized finance offers. And I, I'm saying that in a way, I'm a little bit of a skeptic about some of the promises of DeFi, but I can see places where it could really revolutionize finance. So what do you see down the road in 10 years or 15 years has happened as a result of the blockchain and decentralized finance? Well, first, I'm very glad that even if I don't agree with some of the lawsuits that are coming up and with some of the regulation or the regulatory treatment right now, I am happy to see that there is more attention being paid because that makes it safer for developers to start actually working seriously in this area. Because when there wasn't any regulation, there's always a concern that suddenly someone will shut you down. Um, so you'd rather have regulatory boundaries to adhere to. Um, so that I think is very promising. The, the thing where I would like to see us go are, it, it's okay to just use blockchain technology just for the sake of it. Sometimes some of the most interesting and useful applications come from people just either from artistic expression or just from a sort of thought experiment. But aside from that, I would like to see more activity focused on areas that are truly value-adding and elegant use cases of the technology, especially in developed wealthy nations. And the biggest one right now is, I think, decentralized exchanges. So if we could move, if there could be one that registers as an alternative trading system, and we allow equity securities to be traded, in a decentralized fashion, I think that would be an example of something that's very promising and actually value adding. Well, this has been great. Professor Kim Soyoung, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Soyoung Kim, Associate Professor of Finance, Department Chair at Santa Clara University. Again, thank you. Thanks so much, Karen. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Soyoung Kim. Associate Professor of Finance 
Department Chair at Santa Clara University. I hope you found the podcast compelling and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.